This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Viet Thanh Nguyen, author of the novel The Sympathizer and short story collection The Refugees, and nonfiction books Nothing Ever Dies and Race and Resistance. His novel The Sympathizer won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. Wynn teaches at University of Southern California. He was born in Vietnam and raised in America. His short stories focus on various Vietnamese refugees making their way in the USA. The characters are haunted by their histories, their memories, their dreams, and the ways in which they cannot make peace with the various past and present ghosts in their lives, be it metaphorical or actual. We began the discussion, which was recorded via Skype, about the refugees— talking about the 20 years it took Wynne to write them, and if his thoughts changed over those two decades about his work or his own refugee status. I learned how to write through writing the short stories, and that was a long, agonizing process of trial and error. And learning how to become a writer was definitely integral to how I thought of myself as a refugee and, and, as, a, and as a writer. Um, when I set out to write the stories that became the refugees, what I wanted to do was to humanize Vietnamese people. You know, because I grew up in the United States, well aware that most Americans knew nothing about Vietnamese people, and that this was really devastating because the American perception of Vietnamese people would have an enormous impact on how Americans told stories about the Vietnam War, and these stories were getting exported all over the world. So I thought writing these stories was important. The problem was that learning how to write was then wrapped up in this problem of trying to write stories about Vietnamese refugees. And by the time I came close to finishing the collection, I knew that perhaps the collection might have some kinds of some kind of limitation because I was trying to humanize these people. And that's why I felt like I needed to write um, The Sympathizer, which is a book that is very, very different because its ambitions are quite different. It doesn't try to humanize Vietnamese people, for example. So for me, like the, the, the craft of learning the short story was wrapped up with this, with this project of humanization. And to be honest, uh, I did not go back and edit the stories very much because by the end of 20 years of working with them or 17 years of working with them, I was completely exhausted. I'm wondering about your path to being a writer, because from what I found of your background, you are more of an academic. I did take a few creative writing workshops as an undergraduate and a graduate student, I think three altogether. Um, but I did not go down that road to get the MFA uh, for a number of reasons. I think in the, prim- the primary reason was that I, I knew back in my 20s, early 20s, that I was a much better scholar than I was a writer. And I, I'm a very cautious person, so I'm not one to suddenly decide that I'm going to throw away everything and just try my best to become a writer and starve. So I uh, became an academic, partly because I really care about scholarship, um, but also partially because I needed a job. And that was my attitude, you know, that that being an academic and, and doing scholarship would be my day job and, and writing fiction would be my passion. Um, and I think that was, a, for me personally, a wise choice um, because I think it kept creative, it kept writing fiction as something that was not my profession, but my vocation. So I'm not enmeshed in the whole professional world of creative writing. I write because I want to do it. And even though I might have learned how to write a little faster, if I'd uh, gone down the MFA route, I think I might have become a very different writer at the same time, because it's hard to 
go through an institution like the creative writing programs and not be transformed. For me, being an academic or being a scholar at the same time has been really productive for being a writer because I think it's made me a very different kind of writer than most other writers who have only gone through the creative writing programs. And especially in The Sympathizer, I think it's very evident that the academic knowledge that I've had is is present there. But even in, even in The Refugees, I think, uh, even though the stories themselves are not as political as a sympathizer, I think a lot of scholarly thinking, thinking on my part went into some of the choices that I made in writing those stories. You said earlier that you're a cautious person. Sometimes we don't think about how we get the way we are, but I know you're also the father of a young child, and so you're seeing personality develop. And I'm wondering if you could tell me about being a cautious person and where do you think that comes from, or do you think it's just your nature? I blame my parents. <laughs> I think when I was growing up, my parents were very, very cautious people. You know, they're very devout Catholics, very, very hardworking, very cautious in the sense that they want to make sure everything's safe and that everything's taken care of, that, you know, the family was going to be stable and my brother and I would be provided for and all that kind of thing. And that was an outcome of a very difficult life that they had um, in Vietnam. But the thing about my parents is that at the same time as they were very cautious, um, they're very pragmatic. They also could take risks when the occasion demanded. So in 1954, when the country was divided in two, they took a risk. They decided to leave North Vietnam and go south. And then when the country was uh, divided again, in 19, when the country fell to communism in 1975, they also took a risk and fled. And I learned from that. I think what I learned from my parents was, you know, you need to be cautious. You need to take care of things. You can't take unnecessary risks. But when things really matter, you need to take a risk. And so that was my strategy with writing, you know, that I would, you know, take care of myself, my family and so on by having a job, by being a professor. And I would create the time to be a writer. Um, and that was where the risk was involved, because even though it wasn't a matter of me quitting everything just to devote myself to writing, it was a matter of me sacrificing almost all of my free time for 20 years to the art and the craft and the discipline of writing without any guarantee of an outcome. That's a huge risk. Um, the risk of not just failure, but the risk of failure in the eyes of others, because I think that many of my fellow academics had very little understanding of why I was doing it. And I think that many creative writers looked at me fairly skeptically as an academic who they thought, in the words of one, was a literary dabbler. So I knew I was taking risks. Um, but as long as I had made every everything else in my life secure, then I could undertake that um, that challenge. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Viet Tan Nguyen, author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel The Sympathizer and the short story collection The Refugees. Our interview was recorded on Skype. I don't want to be glib because I know what your parents went through and many people of your generation from Vietnam went through, but was there laughter in your household? No, <laughs> that's not glib at all. There was very little laughter in our, in our household. And, and that was partially because they were very devout Catholics and very serious and stern people, but it's also because they were just very preoccupied with the, the challenge of survival in a new country. I remember when we first came to the United States and my parents were simply working menial jobs, it was actually sort of a happy time for me because they actually had free time to spend with me. But 
once they became self-employed and they opened up their own business, then they became your stereotypical refugee or immigrant shopkeepers who worked endless hours uh, almost every day of the year. And I never hardly ever got to see them. And uh, they were, you know, when they're working like that, when people are working like that, they really don't have a lot of time for laughter or joy in their lives. And that was that was a, a true emotional consequence of what it, of, of what it meant to be a refugee, but also, you know, a personal fallout of the war's history. After they retired or semi-retired and, and they weren't working like that, then they actually became much more joyful. Then they actually, you know, there was, then there was actually some laughter in the household. And I got to see a side of my parents in their semi-retirement that I really had not seen most of my life. And of course, that makes me think how different our lives could have been if, uh, if, if the war had not happened, if we had stayed in Vietnam, if the communists weren't there, if my parents were as, proper, as prosperous as they were uh, before the end of the war, maybe I would have had a happy childhood. Uh, but in that case, I probably would not have become a writer. There's a lot of storytelling. The first story, it opens, and the narrator writes stories, and her mother tells her stories. And I'm wondering about the role of storytelling in your childhood, in your history, um, and you were saying this is in, this book is also interested in memory, which a lot of times goes back to storytelling. Well, I grew up with two kinds of stories. One kind of stories were what I heard from American culture, you know, watching American movies about the Vietnam War, for example, and realizing that there was no place for someone like me in these kinds of stories and that these stories were memories. These these were how Americans were choosing to remember their past. And uh, there was tremendous consequence to that act of storytelling and memory if they serve to do things like erase or efface um, people like me and other Vietnamese people. And so then it became very urgent to tell my own stories in order to address the memories that uh, I knew were circulating among the Vietnamese refugee community and to transform American memories. And, in, uh, and then through transforming American memories, hopefully the world's memories, because American storytelling is so powerful and so pervasive that uh, how Americans choose to remember the, the, their past is oftentimes how the rest of the world does as well. And the other set of stories I grew up with were the stories being told by my parents and by other Vietnamese refugees. And when in the opening story of the refugees, Black Eyed Women, when the narrator says her mother would tell her stories once, twice, three times, that was certainly the case with my own parents. They're, they didn't tell me a lot of stories. But when they chose to tell me stories, they would choose to tell them over and over and over again to make sure I understood and that these stories would become ingrained in me so that they also would become memories. And oftentimes these stories were about terrible and painful things that they wanted me to know about or that they wanted to serve as cautionary tales. And so I also knew from that experience that, again, here it is, stories and memories intersect because my parents were successful. Some of those stories they told me I've never forgotten. And the the way that they told stories, they would tell me stories to warn me not to do things, right? That if I did a certain thing, I would be in danger um, or I would lose my life or something like that. And that's one of the reasons why I've become a cautious person is because of these constant um, stories as warnings that when, that my parents have told me, which have now become a part of my own memory. In this first story, when I started reading it, you don't give away that the narrator is a female until a little bit into the story. I was interested to see my own reaction when I found out it was a female because I just assumed it was a male because you're a male, which is absolutely a false road to go down. But I'm curious if that's something that you noticed and were conscious of. 
it was very deliberate, you know, and there's another story in the refugees called the Americans, which features James Carver, who is African-American. Uh, but we don't find out until relatively late in the story that he is in fact black. And in stories like this, what I was interested in was markers of identity and difference. Exactly. As you say, why do we think certain characters are certain, have certain kinds of backgrounds? Um, and why is it that someone like me, for example, who's Vietnamese, might be expected to write only about Vietnamese people. And what if I did something different? Or as a man, what if I wrote about wrote as a woman? And it always seemed to me that there was some kind, you know, one of the things I object to in, in literary realism um, is how identity and difference can be handled very awkwardly and, and bluntly. You know, a character will appear and we're given a description of a character, which includes gender and, and race and so on. And that's um, useful, I guess, for the reader, but it also reinforces this idea that we have to immediately notice or identify what someone's um, identity is. And if the story is being told from a particular character's point of view, as it is in the case of the opening story, Black Eyed Women, is told from our narrator's first person perspective, that narrator is not in reality probably going around thinking I'm a girl or I'm a woman. And that's what I wanted to deal with. Like I wanted to not avoid the fact that she was a woman, but I didn't want to be awkward in signposting or declaring what her identity was. And I wanted to let that emerge in as subtle of a way as possible and to try to, you know, use various sets of clues or signs to indicate to the reader that, you know, gender might be an issue here. Or in the case of James Carver, the African-American, even before we find out he's black, I think there's certain kinds of signs that appear that maybe he's not white or that he's coming from parts of the country or with certain kinds of history that could imply that he is African-American. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Viet Tan Nguyen, author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel The Sympathizer and the short story collection The Refugees. Our interview was recorded on Skype. A lot of your stories that had children, because they were these refugee stories taking place in America, it's the children that are really straddling both worlds. And is this how you felt? And do you feel like that's important to include in your stories? Certainly when I was growing up, I felt like I was an American. I was you know, constantly exposed to American culture and all the, all, the, all the related things that go with that. But I also felt that I was Vietnamese. Um, I grew up in a Vietnamese refugee community, went to Catholic, Vietnamese Catholic church. My parents were Vietnamese. We ate Vietnamese food all the time. So there was always certainly that sense of duality and a sense that when I was in my parents' household, I was an American spying on them and Yet when I stepped outside into the rest of the American world, I was a Vietnamese spying on Americans. And that duality has been very productive for me as a writer, if uncomfortable for me as a person, you know. And certainly part of you know my own personal uh, trajectory or struggle has been to try to figure out how to reconcile those two identities into something that we could call Vietnamese American identity or Asian American identity. But even though I think that's possible, I think that for many people... Um, who don't have that vocabulary, who don't have the idea of being Asian American or Vietnamese American, some kind of hybrid, they do experience themselves continually um, as being split and struggle with that sense of of duality and the the lack of ability to reconcile. And that's a classic immigrant um, experience that still endures today to different degrees for different kinds of populations. And so it was absolutely important for me to deal with that in the refugees, because I think that it is uh, wide, a widespread experience for the, for the second generation or for people like me who sociologists call the 1.5 generation, born elsewhere but raised 
in the United States. Um, it's a struggle that's, I think, a core part of the American identity and certainly a core part of mine. One of the things I noticed, and I didn't really count them, but I think more had a had a dominant father figure. More of the 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 angst and the tension was between a child and the father. And I'm wondering if I'm accurate in that, and if so, why? I actually am not sure. Uh, I, have, I I you know I, what's interesting is that when I wrote the book, I had a, an Excel spreadsheet where I mapped out all the demographics of my stories because I wanted to make sure that if I wrote a story about an older person, I'd write one about a younger person, man and woman, and so on. So actually, I don't really remember what the the quantitative aspect of of this is, but I think that um, there are certainly stories that do deal with significant mother figures like Black Eyed Women, the opening story. But it's not it's nevertheless true that that father figures and the struggle with them are are crucial, too. And I think that's definitely because in my own life, I had significant relationships with both a strong father figure and a strong mother figure. And both of them were, you know, uh, powerful and loving uh, figures for me. But there were also figures that I was struggling against because they wanted me to do certain things, believe certain things, become a certain kind of person that I was always rebelling against. And so whether it's mother or father, you know, I think there's definitely a generational tension in these stories as children uh, and parents uh, wrestle with each other um, about the choices that they're making, either in regards to the past, you know, Vietnam and its history, or in regards to the present and and how to fashion a new life uh, in the United States. Some of the fathers that you did write about that that I loved, one of the things I loved is that they were really strong. Like one would get up and have his kids do calisthenics and another one had really big muscles. And I'm wondering if there's some link of that to your life. I thought my my father was was very strong. You know, my mother, too. But since we're talking about fathers, I thought my father was very strong because, you know, he he would go and he would work 12 to 14 hours a day, just like my mom. And do that every day of the year of the week. And then he would still take me to school and he would come home and he would he would be the man who would actually cook dinner a lot of the time. And he would do a good amount of the cleaning. And that was actually very significant because, you know, Vietnamese culture is generally fairly patriarchal and sexist. And men don't do those kinds of things. We're not expected to do the domestic chores. So he offered me an example of someone who could do the work that was expected of him, yet also help my mother or uh, do the domestic work and also go to church every week and be a strong Catholic. Even though I don't believe in Catholicism, I, I respect the fact that my father uh, is very devout and he follows through. So he's not a hypocrite. And that's part of his strength. Um, and at the same time, you know, I don't agree with him on so many kinds of issues. And, you know, he made me do, he, we had some, some strong conflicts over certain things that I wanted that he didn't want and vice versa. Uh, and so to have a strong father figure, I think, you know, for me, it's always wrapped up with the potential for, for conflict at the same time. Did he ever do sit-ups and push-ups with you on his back? No, I made that part up. But I think that he did the, the Christian or the, the Catholic equivalent spiritually, you know, which was to make sure that I, that I became a Catholic and make sure that I went through all these rituals, which I thought to be just as punishing as, as the physical rituals that my characters put through in that story. You had one story that was specifically dealing with memory, and it was about a married couple, the cons. The male, the husband, was starting to lose his memory and act a little strange and started to be combative. 
And Mrs. Khan was helping him. And he's calling her by another name. And she's trying to figure out who this female is that of the name that he's calling her because he, she feels like maybe she wasn't his first love and who was this woman. And she never really knows. He writes in his notebook one night, she's responding to the wrong name. I better watch out for her. Something's going wrong. And it made me think a lot about memory and stories and relationships and who is deemed crazy. I think what he, what he says about her specifically is that she may not know who she is anymore. And obviously the irony from Mrs. Khan's perspective is that she she thinks she does know who she is. And that is her husband who's losing his identity through losing his memory. But perhaps maybe he's right. Right. And so the story is about uh, memory's relationship to identity. And obviously there's a, an allegorical dimension to this. You know, how do nations remember history? How do cultures remember history? But it's a very specifically personal story about these two people and the the impact that dementia has on them. And the fact is that without our memory, we lose our identities. Um, and yet at the same time, you know, any easy assumption that we know who we are um, must be put into uh, question. So it's not simply the person who is subject to dementia who may not have a sense of who they are anymore, but even people of, of good mental faculties may not truly understand what's happening inside of them. Uh, and so identity becomes a much larger problem than simply for those who um, have Alzheimer's, for example. And so that's part, that's what I really wanted to explore in, in the story, if, if we're talking about thematics. And the other thing I wanted to explore was just simply at the level of emotions, um, how, how painful it is to, to lose someone um, who you've known for your entire life. And uh, what would, what would, what would that look like at the level of a story? What would, what would um, someone who, who cares for and loves someone has to have to do to take care of that person whose identity is slipping away. So there's great drama and great pain to be found in that. And there's a moment where she had this certain feeling, I think it was a sweating in her palms when she first saw him come into the house when she was going to marry him. And she got that feeling one more time. And it was um, very visceral. Yeah. So what's happened is that he's left the house. Mr. Khan has left the house um, and has wandered off. And she's gone desperately in search of him in the neighborhood, can't find him. She comes back to the house and discovers that he's already there. He's come back. And at the moment that he turns around and sees her, she recalls um, meeting him for the first time in her parents' house. And so the nervousness that she felt that first time returns to her this new time because it is as if he's seeing her anew because his memory has vanished. And so every time he sees her, it's just as if she's, uh, he's seeing her anew. And at that moment, she makes a very crucial decision, which, you know, maybe I shouldn't give away what, what's going to happen, but she makes a decision uh, that, she's, that she's been struggling against the entire story. She makes a sacrifice um, for her husband at that moment because she loves him, even though by making this sacrifice, it completely contradicts everything she's been trying to do throughout the, throughout the story. And so I, at that point, I wanted to try to convey that um, this is what we do when we're in love, whether we're in love as teenagers, as they were at the beginning, or whether we're still in love, hopefully, when we're 65 or 75 or 85, as she still feels that she is. But love inflected by many decades of 
uh, experience and loss and uh, sacrifice. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Viet Tan Nguyen, author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel The Sympathizer and the short story collection The Refugees. Our interview was recorded on Skype. Another theme that came up in a few of the stories, and I know it happened in your life, too, with um, a break-in in your home, but was just the violence that some of the racism can cause. One of the fathers punched someone who wasn't treating his son right. I know that there was fear when you come to a new country, and I'm wondering if you can speak to that. I think one of the things that happened to the Vietnamese refugee community when they came to the United States is that they brought with them the residues of war, which would include trauma and, and depression and all these kinds of things, but also violence. Uh, when I was growing up in San Jose of the 1970s and 1980s, the threat of violence was was omnipresent. You know, we had Vietnamese youth gangs in the second and third grade, right? Where did we, as second and third graders, come up with the idea that we should have gangs? You know, my theory is that a lot of these young boys that I was hanging out with, uh, their fathers were soldiers, were veterans. And I'm sure that the the legacy of violence that they experienced and they, they, they carried out must have been imported into their households because obviously, you know, the rates of domestic violence and abuse and all these kinds of things were, were high in the Vietnamese community. And the phenomenon of home invasions, which were apparently invented by uh, Vietnamese gangsters in the 1980s um, uh, were a direct threat, you know, to the community, and my parents were deeply afraid of it. And I think that those young men who became those gangsters uh, must have been shaped by the violence that had been inflicted on their parents' generation. And so, um, I, I always, I, you know, my my sense of San Jose of the 1980s, my hometown, my youth was that there was always that lurking potential of violence and danger, whether it was going to be coming from the Vietnamese community or whether it was going to be coming from the fact that my parents, as refugees from the war, were were working in a neighborhood in which the, the threat of violence was already high um, because of the particular climate of, of downtown San Jose at that time. So I wanted to convey some of that in the stories of the refugees uh, because that that presence of violence in a refugee community is something I think that was visceral for us and was probably unknown to so many of the Americans that we encountered. Well, I thought you were really adept at ending your stories. And I'm wondering what your concept of is of what a short story should do and how difficult for you are the endings to write. I have a very weak sense of what short stories should do. You know, um, for me, the short story was a format that I took on in order to learn how to write. Um, but the real natural form for me is the novel. So when it came time to write The Sympathizer, I had a great time, and I can explain to you in great detail why I made all the choices that I did in that novel. I feel very, very sure-footed in the realm of the novel. Uh, when it comes to the short stories... I, I, I struggled with all of these short stories. None of them, I think, came easily to me. And I struggled because I was trying to figure out how to do plot and how to do character and how to do theme and how to do language and all these kinds of things. And so ending short stories was very challenging because I didn't know um, intuitively how to do that. How do you wrap up the plot and the character and the theme all at the same time? Um, especially since, for me, short stories are so often... Uh, uh, moments 
in a life versus an entire life. And that was a, that was a tremendous challenge for me because I think that as a writer, I'm interested in the entire life. I'm, I'm interested in, in big stories and big narratives that take time to unfold. And in most cases, short stories are about um, doing that on a very small scale, about finding some important moment in someone's life, the most important moment in their life probably, and focusing on that and building the beginning, the middle, and end around just that moment. That's the tension. Um, and so I think for me, ending a short story is about understanding emotionally what the, the moment of that story is about. So in the case of Mr. and Mrs. Khan and the, uh, the dementia and the Alzheimer's and everything, for me, I think I had to realize that the core of the story was not about just about his memory and its loss, which is the plot, but about the love that the two of them had. And I had to find an action at the end of the story that would convey both the theme of memory and loss on the one hand and the theme of love and sacrifice on the other. And that's always a challenging part. I think an ending of a short story has to resonate at both the level of the plot and at the level of the theme uh, that the story is dealing with. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Viet Tan Nguyen, author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel The Sympathizer and the short story collection The Refugees. Our interview was recorded on Skype. Can you read a passage from something that influenced you as a writer? I'm going to read a passage from Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man which was an enormous influence on me as a writer. Uh, And if you've read Invisible Man, then you'll be able to hear the echoes of that book from The Sympathizer. So this is the opening paragraph of Invisible Man. I am an invisible man. No, I'm not a spook like those who haunted Edgar Allan Poe, nor am I one of your Hollywood movie ectoplasms. I am a man of substance of flesh and bone, fiber and liquids, and, I might even be said, to possess a mind. I am invisible, understand, simply because people refuse to see me. Like the bottomless heads you see sometimes in circus sideshows, it is as though I have been surrounded by mirrors of hard, distorting glass. When they approach me, they see only my surroundings, themselves, or figments of their imagination. Indeed, Everything and anything except me. Do you have anything you want to say about why you chose that? Anything else? Well, I chose this opening passage of Invisible Man because it's very striking, very powerful, and because uh, it completely inspired the opening paragraph of my novel, The Sympathizer, uh, which is also about someone who is struggling with his identity and with his mind as well. Can you read something that you wrote? Maybe it was something that changed a lot from the first draft, something you like, how it turned out. I'm going to read the first paragraph of the opening story of The Refugees because this story, Black-Eyed Women, took me 50 drafts over 17 years. And the first lines of this story were put down in the summer of 1997 when I uh, had just come to Los Angeles and become a professor and started writing fiction. Um, And... It looked nothing like the story that it eventually became. Fame would strike someone, usually the kind that healthy-minded people would not wish upon themselves, such as being kidnapped and kept prisoner for years, 
suffering humiliation in a sex scandal, or surviving something typically fatal. These survivors needed someone to help write their memoirs, and their agents might eventually come across me. At least your name's not on anything, my mother once said. When I mentioned that I would not mind being thanked in the acknowledgments, she said, let me tell you a story. It would be the first time I heard this story, but not the last. In our homeland, she went on, there was a reporter who said the government tortured the people in prison. So the government does to him exactly what he said they did to others. They send him away and no one ever sees him again. That's what happens to writers who put their names on things. And tell me about that. Well, this was a story that was very, very painful for me to write because it took 50 drafts and uh, it almost broke me as a writer, <laughs> I think. Um, and the reason the reason why uh, I became a writer is because it didn't break, break me because I persisted to the end. And the 50th draft looked nothing like the first. Um, so in a way, the, the, first, the ending, the story that eventually emerged was nothing like what I had originally in mind, except for this idea that there was a ghost who was going to come back from the past and haunt someone. That was there in the first story. Um, and the protagonist being a woman who would be deeply disturbed by her past. But almost everything else is different. And reading this opening paragraph, um, I just feel a sense of relief and delight that I persisted and that the story was finished and that I could look at this paragraph and think that this was how I became a writer. So tell me, where do you write? When I had an office, I wrote in my office. That's where I wrote the stories and where I wrote The Sympathizer. Uh, but then since then, I've had a, a, a son and now he owns that room. And so I write in a desk by my bed, or more often now, I just write at the dining room table. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I can't do a whole lot because my uh, writing occupies much of my life, and then my family does, and then my life as a professor. So mostly to get away from my writing or to get away from all these pressures, I go on Facebook or I have a cocktail. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? My partner, Lan Yung, who's read, I think, every word that I've written, oftentimes more than once. And how have you dealt with rejection? Sleep. I think that when the rejection notices come, they're, they're hurtful and devastating, of course, and I just feel awful for the day. And then I go to sleep, and the next day I wake up, and I discover that I've gotten over it. Uh, at least I've gotten over that immediate rejection. And so sleep helps me to maintain my resilience. And what is your favorite word? Asking me about my favorite word is like asking me about my favorite book or favorite author. It's an impossible question to answer, but I'll give it a shot. Uh, my favorite word is yes. I like to hear that. Um, probably my favorite word uh, that is not yes would come from the sympathizer for the moment, and that's crapulent, which I use to describe the character, the crapulent major. It's just a word that when I saw it stuck in my head and th I thought it was so wonderfully appropriate for this character. And I loved using it over and over again. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Viet Thanh Nguyen. 
author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel The Sympathizer and the short story collection The Refugees. Our interview was recorded on Skype. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.